Let me get myself sorted, everybody. Sorry. Um, to start with today, I'm actually going to lead us in a um, sort of half prayer, half poem. Um, and so I hope it's a really helpful way for us to kind of get in the zone. Um, so if we all just take a breath. And then would you bow your heads and I'll just read this for us. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness, quiet my fretfulness, curb my aimlessness, relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. O Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly, from the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip, that I may be open to receiving what you give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. O God, gather me to be with you as you are with me. Amen. That was a prayer from a guy called Ted Loder, who is quoted by someone that I like to listen to. Um, And she uses just that piece regularly. Oh God, gather me to be with you as you are with me. So today we're coming to our final week in the Our Jesus series. And we come to see Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14. And I loved um, Dan's Bible in 30 seconds last week. And it reminded me how important it is to just kind of recap where we are in the Bible. I even brought my kid's Bible because I do miss the fact that we don't often hold our Bibles in church, or I don't. Um, I have my app. So I thought I'd recap. The Bible that we have, whether it's physical or in our phones, is one big, beautiful story about a God of the universe and his relationship with the world that he created. It's a story how God seeks us, how God finds us, and how God rescued us. The story is best understood, as Dan put it, in three parts. The Old Testament, which kind of lays this beautiful red carpet pointing towards this person that's to come, the person that's going to ultimately rescue everybody. And then we've got the Gospels, the four books that talk about this man, Jesus, who kind of didn't really walk on the red carpet that everyone expected. He kind of found different and other ways to show up and present himself. And then the rest of the New Testament, a lot of them are letters to churches, show us what this way of Jesus looks like, what it means to follow Jesus and how Jesus' church can exist in his world. Today's passage, Jesus in the garden, sits right before the climactic moment of the Gospels, particularly in Mark's Gospel. This is the moment before Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested and marched to his death. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, a place he has gone to many times before, and he prays. And I'm going to break this short passage down into three shorter sections. And we're going to see and learn two things about Jesus. 
And we're hopefully going to learn one thing about ourselves. And I kind of think that's an appropriate kind of breakdown when it comes to the Bible in general. We should see God and Jesus. We should learn from him. We should be challenged by him, rebuked by him, inspired by him. But we should also see ourselves in scripture and be challenged and inspired and rebuked for better or for worse. And after each section, I'm going to lead us in a very short, simple prayer that I've written to hopefully respond to um, what we're going to be learning. So this first section of the passage lands where we kind of began in week one of our series, and that is with the confrontation of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have just had this kind of awkward moment together. They've been in the upper room together and now they're making their way to the Mount of Olives. Harsh but true words have been spoken. Jesus has talked about someone that would betray him and now he's telling Peter that he's going to deny him. I don't imagine that everyone's feeling particularly comfortable in one another's presence. There's probably that, you know, post-argument, post-truthful words vibe going on where they're kind of, okay, here we go. And as they get to this point, Jesus sort of leaves most of his disciples in one point and takes three of them on, on with him to a further point. It says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. When you look at those Greek words around what's happening there, it indicates that Jesus is being overcome with feelings of sorrow, of fear. He was troubled. He was lacking courage. In this moment, it would seem Jesus has suddenly become acutely aware of what's before him. A commentary on this moment said this, Though Jesus had long known and had often with realistic plainness spoken about what was to befall him, yet the vivid sense of what it all meant came upon his soul at this hour as this sudden appalling revelation. This is the moment when you're in the wings and you're about to go on stage and you know what you're about to do. You've prepared, you know your lines or you've practised your speech or you're fine, but all of a sudden you have that rush of panic and you think, what am I doing? It's like, yes, I knew what was before me, but it's all of a sudden it's become overwhelming. And I'll say it again, doesn't this surprise you about Jesus? Like he's God. He made the world. He was present at the very birthing of creation. He breathed life into this world and yet he's overcome with sorrow and deeply distressed. Luke, who's a physician or a doctor who writes his gospel, he adds an extra piece for us. He tells us that Jesus agony was so great that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here is a moment to stop and observe. How many of us picture the Garden of Gethsemane kind of like this? First slide, Dan. You know, the attractive Anglo looking Jesus kind of swanning in the garden, praying to his father. I think we, we often think of Jesus like this and it's unfortunate that that's the, the Jesus that we have in our mind. 
But I actually think that Gethsemane is more like this moment. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I don't believe that Jesus is using hyperbole here, like when your six-year-old says, if I put my shoes in the dirty clothes, oh my gosh, I will die. (laughs) I genuinely think there is something more in what Jesus is saying. Jesus' agony as he looks ahead at what he's about to do. Yes, he's going to suffer and die the most excruciating and the most humiliating death known to man. And of course, he's troubled by the prospect of this. But there's also this other deep agony, the deep agony of becoming separated from the Father. The greatest agony of the cross is found in the separation between Jesus and God the Father. Jesus cries out from the cross, the opening line from Psalm 22, and we've all heard it before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows that in order to take on the sin of the world, he has to fully and entirely bear the cost of that sin. And that's to experience ultimate separation from God. So as he's overcome in this moment in the garden about what's ahead, we read that he fell to the ground and prayed, Abba, Father. This is a deeply affectionate term. It's more like saying, Daddy. What we're witnessing here is a really emotional encounter. Jesus comes to his father with a sense of intimacy and familiarity. We know Jesus was God, but he also communed with God regularly. Jesus would often steal himself away from others to pray and to spend time with his dad. Gethsemane is like this beautiful little window into their relationship. We might not totally get, like with our heads, we can't quite piece together how Jesus is fully God and fully human and fully in relationship with God himself and the spirit, but we can see it. At Gethsemane, we get to witness it. We catch a glimpse of a raw and kind of no-frills moment between the distressed Jesus and his papa. (coughs) And so this is the first moment I want us to pause at. And I'm going to offer us a simple prayer. Can you close your eyes and just let these words soak over you and pray them with me? (coughs) Oh, Dad. There is always so much swirling around in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you that we are fully known by you. May we seek to know you the way Jesus knew you. May we always trust you with our deepest emotions and in our most vulnerable moments. May our souls learn that you are fully good. Amen. Now, last week we sang the song Hosanna, and there was one phrase that stood out to me. 
And it was the phrase, we're on our knees. Struck because I was asking myself the question, am I on my knees? And also because I was preparing for this passage and I knew that Jesus was in this position, that Jesus was on his knees. Jesus in his sorrow and distress falls to the ground in this kind of worship position before God. Now, when we did our immersion and we decorated our letters, um, the final concept of the last S we looked at was this idea of our Jesus as the servant king. And the passage we chose was the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, to confess, I don't know how that happened because that moment is neither in Mark nor what I'm speaking on today, (laughs) but it forced me to find it and relive it and work it out for this sermon. And I'm glad we did it. Here's why. One of the commentators said that the shadow of the cross, so the things that happened right in the lead up to the cross, brought to the fore, brought to the surface in more blessed and wonderful ways, the representation of Jesus' deep love. With Jesus' death looming, what we start to see is as the darkness envelops Jesus and as it envelops everyone around him, we see Jesus' deep love for us. In John's Gospel, he writes that Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet because he was fully aware of his standing before God. In John 13, 3 to 4, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And at that moment, he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Dan reminded us last week of Philippians 2, and I'm going to read it again for you. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says this. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The whole of Jesus' life is marked by his willingness to make himself nothing, to completely empty himself of all power, of all control, of all intimidation, of all status. Jesus is the king who washes the disciples' feet to model what leadership looks like. And Jesus is the king who walks toward death and separation from God on our behalf. So then why does he fall at the feet of his dad and say, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
I've had two of my kids in the last few months, by unfortunate timing, need to go under a general anaesthetic. And whether or not they had the words in those moments to actually articulate it, neither they nor I wanted to have to go through that. It's kind of a weird journey to go on as a parent. You kind of take them to this place, you, you sign paperwork, you listen to instructions, you kind of push them towards all the risks that they're naming in front of you. And you go towards something that's quite scary, quite unknown, quite off-putting and makes you feel just a little bit sick. And along the way, they express their hesitations. If any of you have had to walk through anyone going through medical things or anything like that, it's very rare that you don't start to get the hesitations as you go. And along the journey, in every moment when they express their hesitation, I'm able to respond to them. And it looks different. So so they might say, I don't want to do this, mummy. And, And a way I could reply is, I know you don't, but I'm here with you. I'm scared. Here, I'll sit with you. Make this stop. I wish I could. It's hurting me too. And underlying all of this, we are of one accord. We both really, really don't want to do this. And we would really like there to have been another way. You see, when Jesus cries out to God, take this cup from me and follows it with yet not my will but yours be done this isn't the single moment of the prayer we read in Mark's account that he went back to his disciples and mentions to them something about could you not keep watch for an hour then he goes back and prays and he goes back to his disciples again and then he goes back and prays before he goes back his disciples again. The one sentence that we have in Mark is not the whole prayer. Jesus was there with his father for some time. I wonder what responses his dad gave him in those moments. As he prays, I don't want to go through this. This is agony. Make it go away. Surely there's another way. I wonder what sense he got from his father. I wonder what reassurances he had as he prayed his raw and honest prayer. When we read the simple sentence Mark lays out for us, I think we get this sense like Jesus didn't want to do it and God wanted him to do it and God won. Like Jesus brings his suggestion, take this cup from me. God brings his suggestion, no. And and so God kind of wins that round. Maybe Jesus will get the next one. 
We kind of have to be careful that we don't damage the beauty and the sort of divine dance of the Trinity by suggesting that Jesus and God had competing wills. It kind of does an injustice to their beautiful relationship and their communing in this moment. Jesus does ultimately submit himself And gives himself up for the sake of us. His choice to subject himself to the cross was not an imposition of God's will. But Jesus letting go of his. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. Jesus humbled himself. He was obedient to death. Even death on a cross. The wrestling prayer that Jesus has in Gethsemane is a wonderful example of how to pray well. His posture before God is one of desperation, but also one of honour. His prayer is kind of ugly, but it's also really honest. His understanding of God is great, but it's also really intimate. And his desire is made plain, but it's also movable. Take this cup from me. But ultimately, God, I want what you want. So let's pause here again. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer for us. Oh, God. Thank you that you are not silent. Thank you that you are not afraid of my wants and my worries. Keep my heart open to you and my mind open to being changed. Make me want what you want. Amen. And as I said at the outset, we'll now see... A little bit of ourselves in the story. How are Jesus' disciples faring? In their distress, in their trouble, in their sorrow, they are asleep. I said earlier that when we sang the song Hosanna last week, I was struck by the question, am I on my knees? Am I laying before God in desperation and honour and awe of who he is? Am I deep in prayer for the things I know that only he can do? Honestly, probably not. And I think we're all a little bit asleep, if I'm to be honest. We're too busy working, fretting, numbing ourselves just to get through day by day. Jesus says to his disciples, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Something happens in us when we pray. We've just seen Jesus move through a period of deep trouble and 
and distress and emerge prepared. In this text, prayer did not deliver Jesus from suffering. It delivered him through it. Prayer is one of God's primary provisions for our endurance and our perseverance. His words to his disciples apply to us as well. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. We've just talked about these prayer events. It's such perfect timing that we're going to go into a season of prayer as a church. I think this is the perfect note to end on. Let's wake up and pray. So I'm going to finish with one more simple prayer and then we're going to sing. Would you bow your heads? Dear Jesus, we're sorry that we are asleep when we should be awake, watching and praying. Sustain us by your spirit. Amen.